Good morning again, Rogers Park. Good to be with you here on this pre-Thanksgiving Sunday. I'm John McGill. I serve as the associate pastor here at Park Community Church, Rogers Park. Glad to be with you. We've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians for the last few months. And here at Park, we preach through entire books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, section by section. We do not want to skip any parts of the Bible. We want to hear all of what God has to say to us. And sometimes we encounter inconvenient parts, difficult parts. Here we go through everything. But today, as we go in through this next session of chapter 7, we're going to hear a little bit more about how it is that we should place some of the things that we do throughout the course of our normal days and weeks in proper context as children of God. What it is that we do on a regular day, the places that we go to, how do we think about what it is that God is doing in our lives? Let's remember where we left off in the previous set of verses in chapter 7, Paul was talking about marriage and divorce. Marriage is designed to show the world who God is. It's meant to be a reflection of the relationship he has with us, showing the world what, a, what God looks like to the outside world. Marriage is designed by God. One question that the Corinthians had was if one of the spouses of a marriage becomes a believer and the other one does not, should that believing spouse divorce the unbelieving spouse? We learned in the text that the believing spouse should not divorce the unbelieving spouse. Rather, the believing spouse should stay with the unbelieving spouse, love that unbelieving spouse really well, and pray for that unbelieving spouse to come to know Christ. Paul has a lot to say to us regarding remaining in the place where you are, and we're going to look at that a little bit more today. There's a lot to draw out of that theme. We pick up chapter 7, verses 17 through 24, if you have that open, out of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 17 through 24. Let's read. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. Let's pray. Father God, we again thank you that we get to gather here and open your word and hear what it is that you want to communicate to us today. And we pray, Father, that that would be done. Lord, that we would hear what it is that you want to teach us. That we would apply that to our lives. That would be, we would be compelled to be more like your son, Jesus. And that we would give you all the glory. So, Father, it's with that type of heart we enter into your text here today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you're looking at this passage long enough, you'll see, you'll notice that the word calling is used eight times. And there are eight verses 
So if we see the word calling eight times within eight verses, we are definitely going to try and understand this word calling a little bit more. I would venture to guess that most of us here, sitting out here today, have asked ourselves, what is my calling? What is God calling me to do? What is God's will for my life? Wouldn't we like to know? If if you were to Google, what is my calling? You'd see perhaps some suggestions and advice. You'd see articles from Forbes magazine and Inc. magazine and Business Insider. I did a Google search myself and I found this list from lifehack.org, 15 ways to find your true calling in life. I'm not going to list all 15. I'm going to state maybe eight or nine here. Ask yourself questions about how you feel about your life. Make a list showing what you love and hate. Take a test to find out what you're good at. Combine your strengths and interests. Say yes to odd opportunities. Follow your own dream instead of someone else's. Surround yourself with motivated and successful people. Read books or at least watch videos to get inspiration. Enjoy the process of searching your passion. Here's the thing. Some of that is okay advice. Some of that is is not so okay. Depends on the context. But if you're like me, if you are reading that, and you also know that in lifehack.org, there are five or six more pieces of advice that this little website is offering at this particular moment here. If you're like me, that sounds real exhausting. But in verse 17, we read, Let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned him or her, and to which God has called him. The usage of the word called in the original Greek does carry some meaning with vocation and job. We see that word seven more times in the text. It carries a little bit different meaning, but it points back to verse 17, vocation and job and so forth. There are ties there. And within this verse, we find the notion that God is sovereign over our assignments. Basically, if we work somewhere or if we virtually have any particular role in society, which basically means all of us have some type of role in society, God is sovereign over all the details that orchestrated your current role, where you are today. But we still find ourselves asking, what is God's calling on my life? What should I do with my life? Well, in order to know how to answer this question, you must know who you are called to first. And some of you might be thinking, well, that's a pretty interesting notion. What should I do with my life? I can think of that in terms of who I'm called to. That's pretty neat. Should I like this person? Am I supposed to like the person I'm called to or not? Well, here's the thing. The answer is yes. You are supposed to like this person because the person that you are called to is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is calling you to himself. That is your calling in life. Wherever you find yourself, whatever it is that you are doing, your calling is always to Christ first. What is your calling in life? Your calling is to be with God. Maybe you are someone looking at schools or will be in the near future. I have a friend who got into one of Harvard's graduate programs, and she applied to a lot of other graduate programs in this field, and Harvard was the best of the bunch, most prestigious. And she went to the orientation, and 
while at the orientation, the orientation leader was saying things like, here at Harvard, we are going to make you a superstar. And if you're like me, that sounds pretty cool. But to this person that um, went to the orientation, was applying to schools, trying to discern where she was going to go, to her, God was speaking to her in a particular way. And the words that she thought, these are her words, she said, I am not going to find Jesus here. And I honor those words. She did not end up going to Harvard. She went to another school, another prestigious school that spoke to her. God seemed to be in that. And she does work today at a prestigious firm. But today, you know, many of us in in this room, we don't always get into top flight programs, right? We don't all get to work for big law, big tech. Not all of us make it to Major League Baseball or basketball or pickleball. Picking up steam these days, you know. It's like all kinds of articles about that. Warren Park, they got a pickleball you know, place that they're building. One and a half million dollars Warren Park is getting. It's pretty awesome. All right, I digress if you didn't notice. You might even have a job that doesn't require a college degree or even a high school degree. And you may be even someone who is thinking that your role serves very little purpose. Well, I want you to know this, if that is you. God thinks your role has a very big purpose. God sees your job as very important. And wherever you are right now, that is what God is calling you to do. Where you are right now is a place where God is glorified. What is God's calling on my life? What is God calling you to do? You are called to be a Christian wherever you are. That is our calling that comes before any other type of calling. Now God knows how our primary calling to him gets distracted, gets distorted. It gets directed toward wrong pursuits. And many of us have a desire to to build things and have purpose in our work with what it is that we do with our lives. But in the process, we often begin to think that our ways are better than God's ways. And there are reasons for that. One of that is restlessness. We are going to look at that here because Paul takes us head on. Let's look at this problem. Remember where we are. Paul is speaking to the church in Corinth. And the people in the church of Corinth were a restless people. Corinth was a place where you could rise up in society. Your status was not necessarily tied to your pedigree. That could be part of your status, but it didn't have to be. Rather, if you were business savvy or if you played your cards right, you could move up in the business world, for example, and gain lots of wealth. It was a major trade center and commerce center. This made the Corinthians into a very status-oriented people, very outward-facing people. What do you do? What do you have? What do you wear? And as a status-oriented people, Corinthian people were concerned about their outward-facing status. Moving up in society was an outward display. And we in America, in Chicago, can very much relate. What school do I go to? What company do I work for? Can people tell that I'm successful? Or at least can they know I do really fun things on the weekend? Not only can other people tell, but am I content with my status? Does my outward appearance tell the world what I want them to know about who I am? Am I content with my job title? Am I married to the right husband? Am I married to the right wife? 
Am I content with the people that I surround myself by? I mentioned a couple times, I used to caddy in my youth. I shall continue to draw on those experiences because I've got many. This was a prestigious country club. And I don't know how many rich and successful people that I've caddied for that are just sad people. When I say sad, I mean unhappy, discontent about life, playing golf just to kill time. And I remember one time I caddied for two couples, two middle-aged couples. They were probably about, about 55, but all four of them. And the entire time, I kid you not, they were bored out of their minds. And to confirm that, this is where I got the story, the memory from, one of them joked to the other. He said, you know, some people aspire to this lifestyle. They're playing golf in the middle of work week and so forth, right? These are people with money, with nice cars, nice accomplishments, nice jobs, nice status. But no contentment, only restlessness. One of my favorite professors that I've had in my school days and so forth, he's, he's kind of an influential guy. He has a lot of connections. He knows billionaires, right? Billionaires, they know how to reach out to people. By the way, if you want to, there's someone that is an expert in the field, you can email them directly, and there is a chance they will respond. Billionaires know that. They know how to make connections. And they connected with this guy because he's an expert in, his, in the field. And he told me this, plain and simply, he knows billionaires that are absolutely miserable. And why is that? Why is it that someone who is so successful in life that makes all the right moves, positions themselves correctly, is on the cover of this magazine and this website, why is it they can be so miserable? Well, one of the reasons is because our minds in our society today, love to drift towards something like, okay, what do I need to do to craft out the perfect life for myself? And status is not all about money and business. Pursuit in academia and intellectual endeavors, for example, are places where we can pursue status. If you are around a lot of PhDs in the humanities, eventually you will hear one of them say, and reflect, you know, if you climb the ivory tower, you know what's up there. Nothing. There is nothing up there. And these are PhDs. They will tell you that. Now, business, intellectual pursuits, a pleasing appearance, those are not inherently bad things. We could talk about the positives there, okay? So don't hear me wrong. But in our society, in the ancient Corinthian society, let's face it, even in our own personal lives, including myself, we do things to match what we think the ideal status should be for ourselves. And that our job titles, our resumes, our wardrobes become our ways and means to achieve the right standing. It's how we're oriented, and it's restlessness. But answering the call to God is a completely different pursuit in that it's not based on anything we do. Rather, it's based on all the work he has done and all the work he continues to do in us and through us. When the people in the Corinthian church became Christians, they immediately asked, okay, I become a Christian. Now, what do I need to do? 
Are there things that I need to, to are things that I need to do to seal this, this Christian label that I now have? What are the circumstantial changes that I need to make? Instead of focusing on the inward change that God orchestrates. When we receive Christ as Lord and Savior, it's an inward change of the heart. And the Corinthians needed some correction here. And Paul takes his problem head on. In addition to marriage and divorce, Paul now gives us two more illustrations of not needing to change your circumstances, but remaining in place. And he uses two of the biggest outward markers of the day, circumcision and slavery. Circumcision was the most religious status marker of the day. Slavery was the most social status marker of the day. And so now we turn here to Paul's remarks regarding circumcision. And we read in verses 18 through 20. Verse 18, Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. By the way, what is up with circumcision? I'm going to spare you of the medical details, but why circumcision? Why is it that God chose that as the sign of the Abrahamic covenant? Or, that's a Christianese term or, or a Jewish term, why, is it, why did God choose for males uh, in the Israelite tribe to be circumcised to symbolize that they belong to God? Why did he choose that? Well, I've heard a number of good explanations, and some of them have some overlapping um, similarities and, and so forth. There's one that's really compelling that I've heard, one of my favorites, and it ties in actually really well with a lot of the sex and sexuality discussions we've been encountering in these, in these last few chapters of 1 Corinthians, and it goes something like this. Why circumcision? Our sexuality, our sexual nature, that is typically the most personal thing about us. That is the thing that we most try to guard. That is the thing that we most struggle to control. That is the thing that God wants from us. God, he says to the Israelites, you will be my people. You will be my beloved people. You will have a covenant with me. And it's going to come with all kinds of benefits. And through the seed of Abraham, all the nations will be blessed through you. But with these benefits that you are going to receive in return, I want this. I want your sexuality. I don't want just part of you. I want all of you. And whether or not you agree with that exact interpretation or not, it's actually a very helpful illustration for us. God doesn't just want part of ourselves. He wants all of ourselves. If you are a Jewish boy in ancient Roman times, you were circumcised when you were eight days old. Now, circumcision was a humongous discussion in the early church. Many Jews, of course, became Christians. Jesus was a Jew. He was the king of the Jews. And in the Jewish mind, the uncircumcised were not under the covenant blessings of God. And so there was an effort by some to make Gentile believers like Jews through circumcision. 
But this outward sign became somewhat of a a status symbol, a a works-oriented action. And it was a discussion here in Corinth. And what did we say before? The Corinthians were an outward status-oriented people. And when you play sports or took baths, you did that in the nude. So you can see in the minds of these status-oriented people, if you're doing these things in the nude, this is going to quickly become uh, front and center, right? What is it that I look like to all these other people? But amongst the believers in Corinth, you had a, a plethora of things that these Corinthians were trying to figure out what to do. And this is not the only place that you saw this. We see this in Galatia. We see this in other churches. You had Gentiles that wanted to get circumcised because they thought it would turn themselves into Jews and make them look like Jews. You also had Gentiles uh, that did not want to get circumcised because they did not want to look like Jews and have uh, an unfavored social standing in certain places in the Roman society. And interesting to our ears, we also had Jewish believers who wanted to undo their circumcision through an actual process called epispasm. But that was also just another form of having this outward appearance. Outward appearance to the Roman, the Corinthian society that would perhaps give them an enhanced social status and so forth. And Paul makes it very clear it is neither here nor there whether men are circumcised. Circumcised, uncircumcised, remain in your place. Being a follower of Christ is not a matter of being circumcised. Paul is addressing here status motivations, religious motivations, and and doing things that make us look more spiritual. We could unpack that some more. Outward works-based change instead of focusing on the inward change of the heart. God does not desire the change of ethnicity or outward appearance. No, he wants the inward change of the heart. Well, so now we turn to Paul's third illustration. We talked about divorce briefly. We talked about circumcision. Paul goes on in verses 21 and 22 to talk about slavery. And they read like this. Are you, were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. Okay, whether free or slave in this world, we are slaves of Christ. Now, in the current version of the ESV Bible, we read the word bondservant. Some of our translations might read slave. Here's the thing, bondservant and slave, those are the same exact words. There is no difference. In fact, if we look at the word bondservant, we can take that word and say, A servant that is in bondage, therefore slave. But in our minds, the word bondservant does sound a little lighter than slave, which is actually pretty helpful. And I think that's why the ESV did it that way. They may have some other reasons. I'm not a PhD. But it's helpful for us because here in America, when we think of slavery, our minds immediately go to antebellum south, pre-Civil War, Civil War, race-based slavery. That is not the slavery that was in Corinth. It was something different. 
It's also, the, it's also not the kind of slavery that we sadly see in East parts of East Asia today. It's also not the kind of slavery that we see in sex trafficking across the world and also very prevalent here in Chicago. That's the kind of slavery that you are passionate about doing something about. That is a very worthy endeavor, to say the least. I hope we can do more with that. When pre-Civil War era slave masters tried using the Bible to justify slavery, that was a clear misuse of the Bible, just to be very clear. Nonetheless, 2,000 years ago in Corinth, to be a slave was not a good thing. To be sure, there were abuses, there were rapes, there were punishments. Those are just a few reasons why God addresses slave masters. In the Bible, God works to correct and undo the atrocities of abuse. Again, all as a result of our fallen nature, the slave master in ancient Corinth could do what he wanted with his slaves. The slaves would have to obey their master. The slave did not have any rights. But, surprisingly to our ears, a slave in ancient Roman society might on occasion, could even be richer than the slave master. That sounds kind of weird, but that was the case with some. A slave could be a doctor or perhaps an engineer, an architect. You could be better educated than your master. That wasn't normally the case, but it was possible. Education was, even though somewhat encouraged among slaves. Sometimes slaves in ancient Rome would give themselves to slavery so that they could move up a social ladder. All in all, in ancient Corinth, you had one-third of the population that were slaves, one-third that were previously slaves but now free, and then one-third that were free. So that was the landscape in Corinth, the status-oriented city in ancient Rome. Slaves could expect to buy or earn their freedom by about age 30 or so. So again, that's, a, that's different than what we're normally thinking of when we, terms, when we think of slavery. <clears throat> but the message that Paul says here is that if you are a slave and you have now become a believer Don't worry about needing to get out of that. You can stay there. And God wants to use you exactly where you are. Your calling is to be a follower of Christ in whatever circumstance you find yourself in. We want to draw this out a bit more, but before we do that, we want to reiterate that Paul makes it clear that if you can gain your freedom, then you should do that. That is a good thing. Furthermore, this is not a call to stay in an immoral or unlawful circumstance. If you work for a prostitution ring or for a crack house and you become a believer, you should get out of that immediately. Even if you are not a believer, you should get out of that immediately. If you are living with your boyfriend or girlfriend at the time of conversion, you would want to leave that living situation as well. To a slave in ancient Corinth, means you're at the bottom of the social ladder. And again, the people in Corinth were very occupied by this sort of thing, social ladder. But if we were a slave in ancient Corinth, and then God took a hold of our heart and gave us a completely new identity, that is not the identity of the Corinthian society, but rather one that is defined by Jesus Christ, well, we cannot find ourselves in a more favored position than that. It's in that place where we as believers can find all the rest and contentment we need. And God loves work. 
God loves work. We will talk more about work someday. Followers of Christ are called to be good workers because they work for an audience of one. Those of us believe who believe we work for an audience of one. Even when we have bosses that we listen to, even when we have co-workers that want us to get something done, we want to help out, we look to God and work for him. Followers of Christ do these things to please God first. And when we come into our work knowing that God is in the room with us or in the field next to us, we can have all the confidence in the world that any hard work that we perform will be performed for God's good purposes. There's nothing in this world that God isn't using and redeeming. And there's no greater purpose than working for God's purposes. Everyday work is all, about God, is all for God's purposes. It's still a part of God's creativeness. He is still doing creation today. And the work that we do is how we relate to the world. It's how we're in the world. And it's there that we can show much of a good God and a loving God that we have to the watching world. We don't just do that here on Sunday mornings. No, God gathers his people here on Sunday mornings to celebrate, to learn, to worship. And then he scatters us throughout the world throughout the week. That's the places where we have influence. God even calls us to some dark places because it's in those dark places where we can be the light. Now that could mean evangelism to co-workers, It could mean starting a Bible study at work. Those are good things, things I hope we are able to do and are doing. But those are not what our companies are paying us to do. Except you're, unless you're like you know, me or Jason or Phil or Sam or Maddie or something like that. Companies pay us to do excellent work. When we do excellent work, that is yet another way for us to witness for Christ and compel people to know what makes our Christian hearts tick. And I'll tell you what, when a slave master comes to know Christ, well, that does a stirring work in his heart as well. And the outflow of that is supposed to mean good things for his workers because all followers of Christ work for an audience of one. But it doesn't end there. Some of our work is grueling, and some of us stumble into jobs that we didn't anticipate getting into. I want us to know that if that is you, again, God has a large calling for you right where you are. And when we know that God has called us to be where we are in our current circumstances, we can bring even greater to glory, even greater glory to God, acknowledging that truth. When we can remember that our identity is not in our job title or social standing, but rather defined by Jesus Christ. That changes the scenario completely because our labor is for the pleasure of our Lord and Savior and he will use that accordingly. Doesn't mean we don't fight for justice. Doesn't mean we don't pray for things to change. Doesn't mean we don't work and fight to make, wrong, to make right those things that are currently wrong. But as followers of Christ, we are afforded the ability to have complete rest knowing that God is in control. Becoming a Christian does not mean changing your circumstances. Being a Christian means being a Christian in your circumstances. Now let's take some time to draw out some more applications here. Sometimes we do make drastic changes in our jobs or circumstances. 
some, sometime about, about after coming believers, after becoming believers. That is not prohibited, but we are not supposed to be anxious about it. We are supposed to be feeling secure knowing that God is behind that. We, that is something we are supposed to lift up to God. Some of us just make changes in our, in our jobs regardless. Sometimes that can be a disobedience, but we can pray for those types of things. We can be assured that God is behind that if we have lifted it up to the Lord. And there is no job that makes us more Christian. Being a pastor, becoming a missionary, becoming a pastor, becoming a missionary, those are not things that make us more Christian. Granted, there are qualifications for those types of jobs. In my personal devotion today, I was reading first chapter of Titus, which talks about qualifications for the elder and so forth. But becoming one of those types of things, say in the church, that doesn't make us more Christians. If that is our mindset, That is like adopting, again, the wisdom of the world. We don't want to do that. I had a CEO once who loved to tell me that he was a high priest in the Mormon church. Now, he and I, we did not see eye to eye on theological matters, of course. Um, We did see eye to eye on some some business matters, but, uh, you know, the Mormon church, you know, they do not have the same conception of the Trinity that we do. They do not not believe in the Jesus of the Bible. They think he is something different and so forth. But here's the thing. He loved to tell me, um, because we had some spiritual conversations, that he was a high priest in the Mormon church. But in boardroom meetings, he'd love to say, I am a capitalist swine. Now, I'm not going to knock capitalism. The problematic portion of that statement is swine, right? It's problematic if you are proclaiming yourself to be a man of faith, if you're proclaiming yourself to be a child of God in a world of darkness that doesn't need more darkness added to it. In the workplace, you have the opportunity to be with coworkers or customers up close and see them the way God sees them. You, you can enter your workplace knowing that every single person that you see is in desperate need of Jesus Christ. Without Jesus, they are completely hopeless. And God wants to use you in that regard. He wants you to be the light in the dark places for only the best purposes. You are his treasured possession that he moves around. Same if you are a student with classmates. So many opportunities to be a Christian in your life setting. Worship is not just something we do on Sundays. We worship when we learn. We worship when we study. We worship when we eat. We worship when we interact. Everything we do is meant for worship. It's meant to bring glory to God. And stay-at-home moms and solitary farmers and CEOs, and tradesmen, and prisoners that were converted in prison, and people that are in nursing homes that will never work again. God is calling all of us in our current circumstances. When you study, when you work, what you do in your marriage, you are to do it for the glory of God. Might you be able to envision how your primary calling helps you And if you can't find yourself able to do that, ask yourself, are you restless about your social status and the way the world sees you? Are you restless about your possessions? Are you restless about life? 
Are there pieces of your life you want to put together before you think about answering your call to God? I have a friend from college. He lives in one of the high-rises along Sheridan and so forth. I remember asking him 10 or 12 years ago, hey, are you attending any church services, right? He has a Catholic background. He's not Catholic. Um, he's or not a practicing Catholic. There are Catholics who are Christians, by the way, but a lot of Catholics think of church as attending a Sunday Mass, or, excuse me, Christianity or faith as attending the Sunday Mass. We can unpack that. I know some very good Christian Catholics. Long, long and the short of it is, I lobbed him a question. Are you attending a church gathering these days? And his answer was, no, that's a really good question. Thanks for asking that, John. But, uh, you know, once I get married, once I get set in my career, you know, once, once I'm able to, to buy a house and, and uh, be where I want to be, that, at that point, that's, that's when I'll be able to start looking at churches and maybe pay more attention to that. Well, that of course, is completely backward in the way God designs. And when I talk to this person you know, 10 years later, he still hasn't been to a church service. He may hear me talk about Jesus to him. I just saw him a few months ago. But there is still work to be done. Too often our mindset is, if I do this thing, if I reach this next step, then I will be in a good position to start engaging with God again when that is completely backward. We are called to him. Despite any milestones in our life that we have not achieved yet, and we actually may never achieve certain milestones, God is still calling us exactly where we are. It doesn't change our calling to God. <clears throat> and God wants you to know that you are his. Let us, and he lets us know this in verse 23 by saying, <clears throat> you were bought with a price. You were bought with a price. Our life's contentment does, depends not on what the world thinks we are or what badge of honor we wear on our sleeves, but what we are to Christ. We are his. We cannot be restless and struggle to find our life's calling when we already know our primary calling. That is to be called to God. He is already doing that. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. We become slaves of men, second part of verse 23, not when we are the types of slaves that you find in ancient Corinth. No, but rather when we think that we cannot find a calling in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. God wants us to flourish where we are. And if we are to move on, that is supposed to be something that God is behind. God purchased us with Christ's blood on the cross and made a way for us to have freedom no matter where we find ourselves. Believers live in the freedom of Christ. Believers have no better status. Whether, if you are the lowliest peasant with no money, but you have Christ, that is a much, much better position than the wealthiest person on Wall Street without Christ. Those of us believe, those of us who believe, belong to Christ. It is there that we find our contentment in our calling. Let's pray. Father, we bless you. 
We thank you, Father, Lord, that you have bought our lives. You did it through the gospel. You gave us your son. He wiped us clean, Father, that we could be made righteous. And you, Father, would adopt us as your sons and daughters. We thank you, Father, uh, that you are that good, that you have a large heart for us, that you know us better than we know ourselves. You know where it is that we have restlessness. You know where it is that we have anxieties. You know the desires of our hearts. You know the ones that need correction, Father. We pray, Lord, that you would correct us in that regard, that we would see the work that you are doing, that we would find our calling in whatever circumstances we find ourselves, knowing that you are the one who is at work in our lives. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.